A Viking wakes, with only a loincloth to protect his dignity, in a meadow. He stumbles into some trees, and in an instant is overwhelmed by a group of geckos. He wakes again, and very quickly is defeated again. Sometimes he loses his life in a fierce battle, but more often the risks he faces are mundane and posed by the game's realistic physics. In the world of gaming, death is not the end. Instead, it is an obstacle to be overcome. The gamer controlling our Viking soon learns that he is trapped in some sort of purgatory. The player tries and fails, tries again, fails better, but beyond a few glimpses of Odin watching from a distance and the odd hint from one of his ravens, there is no real story here. This is not a game of scripted missions and glorious heroism. Rather, it is a struggle to survive against the elements, to create purpose in a world where the only rules are those of physics. Games like Valheim are built around the physics of the world the player inhabits, more than any narrative. They carefully incorporate aspects of the world, wind and waves, tiredness and hunger, fire and decay, so that the player must keep a constant sense of their surroundings when developing their tactics. Now let's imagine a new Scandinavian hero in a new virtual world. This hero is no longer a Viking trapped in purgatory, but a Danish tourist on a walking tour of the South Coast. She sips her pint and looks out from the pub bench to the harbour. Boats bob prettily, a train passes. The tide rises, wind pushes waves over the sea wall. Sets of automated gates close off the slipway and our tourist makes her way safely to the sandwich shop to buy a souvenir or to check into her hotel. Both of these scenarios are constructed using the same tool, a real-time simulation or gaming engine called Unity. These tools have been developed over the last 20 years to allow the creation of immersive games but they can also be used by engineering firms, in consultations, in project design, and in a host of other ways. Welcome to Engineering Matters. I'm Johnny Dowling. And I'm Rian Owen. In this episode, we're partnering with Atkins in-house creative and digital agency, Creative Design, to learn how engineers are seeing the advantages of utilising gaming engines to design, develop and explain their project to the public. In the first scenario we looked at, our Scandinavian hero was a game character in Valheim, a popular indie survival game. In the second, she was a visitor to a small town on the English coast, where Atkins was holding a public consultation on the building of new harbour defences. Here's Atkins' senior immersive designer, Mike Dunlop, to set the scene. We're Cockwood Harbour. That's a little town in, in England near Exeter in the UK. And it's, it's a beautiful tourist town. But the problem is, is that this beautiful tourist town floods <laughs> quite often, which is, you know, it's expensive to repair. That removes the, the tourism. It impacts the transport in the area. There's quite a key 
kind of transport link going through Cockwood Harbour, which is a railway. The town needed protection, but it also needed to preserve its character. If you tell a lovely English seaside town, you know, that that depends on tourism, we need to build a 12-foot wall around your bay to, to stop this flooding issue, then that's terrifying. In most people's minds, that would be, okay, well, you know, that's, that's our tourism gone. No one's going to want to come to our harbour to see a 12-foot concrete wall. There's a rare kind of snail in the area, you know, that likes to live in some of the cavities of the old wall. So, you know, what's going to happen with those? You're talking to, to a small town of people, you know, some people that aren't necessarily technically minded in the, in the world of engineering. And you're trying to convey the point of how important this sea wall is to protect their properties and their towns, but also how it won't impact tourism. Part of the challenge the consultation faced was the way the proposal was explained, says Tom Greener, principal real-time developer at Atkins. There was a bit of a misunderstanding, so to say, from the engineering drawings, that a massive wall was going to be built. It's going to block off the harbour. Initially, they were approached with a load of 2D drawings, basically just showing them, you know, this is the X height of wall, this is the new height of the wall. Doesn't that look fine? To which the public said, we don't understand. But what was in reality was a large amount of this wall was going below the ground and that the actual wall wasn't going to change too much in its height from where it was. The drawing would have been clear to any engineer, but not to most members of the public. Engineering drawings are great. They make a lot of sense. Normally, to get the most out of them, you need to understand an engineering drawing. So you take these apps to a town, a city, a village, wherever it may be. A handful of people might be engineers. They might understand how to get the most out of these. Your general public isn't going to be able to take in all the information. So they created a new way to convey that information to locals and stakeholders. We actually used real-time technology to build the entire town. So we had the entire area of Cockwood Harbour in a real-time model. We had a little slider at the top of the screen. So we're trying to keep this as simple as possible. There's a slide at the top that basically showed normal conditions and then the flooding condition that had happened in the last 10 years. And what that did when you clicked that toggle is it raised the water level from the normal level to the flooding level and then all the houses, all the houses in the area flooded. And you can see that by toggling this on and off. The immersive environment the Atkins Creative Design team created allowed users to select the viewpoints that mattered most to them, like that enjoyed by our virtual Danish tourist. There's a nice little pub. It sits along the harbour. People like to sit there, drink, watch the boats, watch the trains go by. There was a big comment that was asked, what's my view from the pub going to be like? If visitors have seen a nice Instagram post of the harbour, they might stop by for a pint or even stay in town. But if the view were blocked by the harbour wall? They might not do that. They might be like, well, if I can't go enjoy a nice pint in the sun and watch the boats go by, I'm not going to go to that pub. We hadn't thought about that in design and we didn't think that was going to be a, a question that was asked. So what we actually did later that day, ahead of a consultation the next day, was put a viewpoint for people along that pub. So they could directly go there, they could view what it was going to be like from that point. That answered a lot of questions for people immediately. An approach like this allows engineers and project owners to respond quickly to public questions. 
They can ease the logistics of consultations and make them more flexible. And they can even shape their presentations to meet the needs of different users. We can build accessibility directly into these applications. Again, if you've got people with physical disabilities, color blindness is a great example of this. We can build various uh, systems into these applications to accommodate for this much more so than you can, say, put a poster up. That's supported by those volunteers, by the, the, the people in those town halls, the people that are wanting to push the stuff forward for the more in-depth questions. The tools that Tom and Mike use have wide applicability in engineering, but were originally developed for the world of gaming. It's the same underlying technology that runs through both of them. So in, in essence, what we're using a lot of the games engines for is the renderer and the physics system. Games have put a lot of money into that over the last 20 odd years. It's come on massively over, over that time. And about, yeah, about seven, eight years ago, there was a bit of a realization that you can utilize that same technology to drive architecture, engineering. What we started to do is then utilize that technology, but in a slightly different way. At their core, they're not a lot of difference. It's all what uh, the developers, what the visualizers put into those engines to give you output. Obviously, games are focused a lot more on the fun-driven narrative that you would pay 40 quid for. Well, don't pay 40 quid for games anymore, but pay that money for. Whereas what we do within the architecture and engineering sectors is a lot more practical driven. Jack Strongetharm is a solution engineer with Unity, the gaming engine which Atkins uses for many of its simulations. He's no coder, but he first came across the technology as a user. I had to build a, uh, a trade show event exhibit uh, to make people interested in what I was doing at the time. And I came across Unity as a great way to take content, which was uh, 3D scans at the time, but also CAD models, and build a, a, a VR treadmill. So something to get into, walk around and experience, see it in virtual reality. And it all came together with Unity so easy because I could just learn how to do it on things like YouTube and many other places. I'm not a programmer, but I managed to do a lot. The tools Jack use are designed for community development. Enthusiastic amateurs can learn to use them online and quickly get to work creating. What you're really greeted with is just kind of an empty world. So it's actually set up for you just into an environment that you can start to interact with. But this can then be populated with data from external sources. Now, what we would normally do, I mean, if I'm thinking of our most kind of standard project, we'd probably start sourcing kind of three main data sets that we'd bring in. Let's say that we're building a school on an air on a brownfield site. So what we'd do is we'd bring in the context area. So that's normally kind of your satellite imagery. If you think about like Google Maps, where you have all the elevation data and then you have aerial photography layered over it, we would then talk to the architects and the mechanical engineers, and then we would bring in their, their 3D school design. That would normally be produced in something like Rhino or Bentley or Revit or AutoCAD. And then we would then bring in potentially all the trees and the shrubbery for the area. But all those trees and shrubbery 
needs to be accurate to the correct species, the height and the radius. So we would then talk to the landscape team, who normally works in, in 2D top down, to then start understanding what kind of vegetation they need placed. We could bring those designs in and then place those around the area. Now, as you're bringing those data sets in, like the 3D, for example, when you're using a tool like Unity Unreal, you actually, it's as simple as you right click, import, and you import the 3D, and then you can just drag it into the screen and you'll see your 3D pop up in, in that world. But these tools are not just used to create a static environment. They can incorporate simulations of real world physics and have elements interact over time. Once, developers would have to define these rules each time and make them work on whatever platform they wanted to use. If you think about how kind of graphics and, and computers have been in the past, you know, you could be spending months or even years designing how lighting systems work and how a shadow is created from that lighting system and where the rays of the sun come down, how cloud systems would work, how an interface would work, how you could talk to uh, operating systems like Windows and Mac, iPads, Android. And that could cost you hundreds of thousands of pounds just, just to develop that initial framework. What the real-time engines have done is they've created that framework already. The physical rules developed to make gaming fun or challenging can find uses in much more practical applications. From a wind model, area in a game, it puts resistance, it puts pressure on it one way or another, it makes it drop faster. We're going to use that to steer water to make trees blow in a more realistic fashion. From like a fluid simulation point of view, we might have, yeah, it's, it's a light fluid. It gets pushed by wind. Wind moves it. It's all come out of games technology. prime example that from games is like the best example I've seen is using um, like fluid simulation to figure out how um, a pirate ship would sink if you shoot it with cannonballs. Yeah. It's a bit more of a fun principle but beforehand you might just find yeah the ship sinks into the water it might tip over or something but now they're like well actually if you shoot them in the back it's going to sink in a particular way but if you shoot them in the middle it's going to sink in a different way because of how the water's behaving around that system. Much of the challenge of a game like Valheim comes from ensuring your Viking has the health and stamina to perform a task in challenging environmental conditions. The same sort of rules that enable this gameplay combined with AI have also enabled Atkins to measure how pedestrians might walk down a busy street in a hot climate. We are looking at a project for shade and you know, you're, you're dealing with 40 degree plus temperature. And it was looking at how a person's potential health could be impacted over a journey, depending on what facades are in place on this building. So we were programming the AI to favor shade. So yes, it might be a longer walk, but actually they're spending 80% of their time in the shade and therefore their health parameter that we programmed in would stay much higher. Whereas someone who, an AI that was programmed to go, nope, I'm just gonna get there as fast as I can, would actually get there. I think from memory from a simulation would get there about five seconds faster, but their health metric that we programmed in would be much lower because they've literally just walked all this distance 
in a 40 degree heat. The gaming industry was in 2021 worth around $200 billion. By 2026, PwC reckons it might be worth as much as $320 billion. That gives developers plenty of reasons to improve how games represent the world and the resources to do so. The water systems got more advanced, skies like sun, clouds, they got better looking, your grass, your trees, everything just got better looking, better to interact with, all to immerse the gamer at that point in time into the environment more. But through all those technological advancements that were pushed by games, from a engineering point of view, we could leverage all that, you know, realistic grass, realistic trees that benefits us, realistic water that benefits us, better buildings, better sky, better weather systems. They all benefit us. Those elements then interact with each other and with the simulation over time. We can swap assets out and kind of give user control in some, uh, in applications we've done before, we've given user control over the time of day and the season. From a seasonal point of view, you have longer days, you have shorter days. So different buildings might, different buildings, different assets, different circumstances might be different on a summer day where you've got 14 to 16 hours of light than it might be on kind of a winter night where you might have six or seven hours of light. Your winter trees are going to be very different to your summer trees. How does that affect stuff visually? How does that affect stuff from an audio point of view? And all of this stuff we can, we have control of within these applications to be able to combine with code, combine with different assets that we've created to allow the user to experience this in different ways. One of the tools Atkins uses to develop these 4D environments is called Speedtree. Acquired by Unity in 2021, it has been used in games like Red Dead Redemption 2 to create a version of the American Old West, rich in nature. The game told the story of a gunslinger, but many players spent time just wandering around the desert on virtual botanical tours. And engineers can make real use of the tool. We're bringing those speed tree assets are also available to put in uh, Tom's uh, engineering projects so he can get the specific specimen and type, you know, some UK tree conifer and those things will be there. And then you can also define their different views in autumn, summer, and height growth over the years. So you, can, you know, they will be obviously planted as saplings, and then over the next 10 years, they will grow. Set against the vast scale of the gaming industry, engineering's use of real-time simulation makes a modest impact on the revenues of the tools developers. At the same time, suppliers of engineering design tools were initially slow to allow the models they created to be used in gaming engines. You know, it's almost quite fashionable in kind of the early 2000s to have, you know, your, this is our software ecosystem, you must remain in it and we'll take good care of you and, you know, you can't really integrate with anything else. And I think it's probably only, say, over the last like four, maybe five years that the engines have started to get a lot more involved in that as well. So the tool sets from the various engines are starting to release more architectural and engineering tool sets to bring that information through. We like to have access to really nice renderers to make things look nice. We like to have access to integration with traditional 
engineering software. So integration with stuff like Revit, with the Autodesk suite, Navisworks, Bentley systems, just means that we can get our assets from our probably asset creator with as minimal kind of legwork as possible into these engines. As the engineering firms have improved interoperability, so too have the gaming engine developers turned their attention to engineering. These tools were built for companies and enthusiast communities that wanted to simulate space stations, ancient mines or magical castles. The assets they created, shared and sold were designed with these environments in mind, but Atkins and their clients already have more practical virtual assets to hand. If we were to visit various um, like asset stores or 3D model libraries, 100%, you get a lot of gun racks, you get a lot of rundown spaceships and stuff like that, because that's what the games get the industry use. You're not going to go find London Paddington on an asset store somewhere that's perfectly ready for you to walk around. But luckily, that's where we've got in-house here at Atkins, we've got all the different engineers, the architects, all the different disciplines that make up SNCL and Atkins to give us those models. They've got them, they've built them for the projects they need, so we can effectively add additional functionality and an additional use case to assets that are already being produced by the company. That aids the engineer's ability to explain their ideas to a client or to the public in a consultation. It also allows them to bring their skills together in a collaborative way. To do that, they need to be able to export models from each contributor's preferred engineering software. There is definitely a, a kind of waking up in the large, the large software providers that they need to start opening up their formats. NVIDIA and Omniverse, they're pushing a, a 3D format that's that's completely open-ended to any software and they're encouraging software providers like Bentley and Autodesk to use that file format as well. The idea is to kind of complement that technology uh, and take content from those design products and then bring them alive in, in our game engine. To reap the most rewards from the virtual assets and data they already have, engineers and clients need to think about how they might be used as soon as they are created. It offers a lot more value, you know, you get in day one on one of these assets, it follows the life cycle of the asset. As the asset grows, the data set grows, the applications grow. So what we find is engaging with, the, engaging with our clients early, explaining this technology early to them, helps them get the most out of it. Simulation in engineering has moved from 3D CAD models to BIM and digital twins, which incorporate additional data to project designs to what Jack calls operational digital twins, which live alongside the project. Operational digital twin is, is kind of the next level. That's where we've had the most interest, actually, uh, which is obviously quite bespoke in everybody's use case. And I just think that most people see a game engine as a way to provide that bespoke application because their requirements don't live in a software product they can buy on the open market. It doesn't exist. Where it separates it from say a traditional visualization or a traditional engineering drawn on the wall or even a high quality render is the ability to add customizable logic over top of it. 
So most game engines come with a scripting language from a programming point of view. So we can take the game engine at the base, take all the hard work that the games engine companies put in, that the games industry over 20 years have fed into its improvement and then go, actually, we want it to do this now. You bring in a developer, you bring in people that can program from that point of view. You can then start to add all your own logic over the top of it. Today, engineers can combine all of these tools with bespoke logic to answer very specific questions during the consultation process. Stakeholders don't just see a map or a 3D rendering. They can immerse themselves in a situation and view or hear it in a way that matters most to them. Whenever we do a road consultation, obviously one of the big concerns, if you've got a new dual carriage highway being built at the back of your house, your big concern if your house has been there for 20 years and now there's a big road being built, is am I going to be able to sit in my garden and relax? Am I just consistently going to be hearing trucks and lorries drive past? So one of the things we can then do with an audio is start looking at different sound barriers to put in place. So, you know, is there a tree line? Is there a fence? All this other stuff. And how that impacts the audio. And we can simulate what that audio would sound like to you. We can simulate that um, with different mitigation means. Obviously, there's the visual impact from that as well. A fence might do, might block more sound, but doesn't quite necessarily look as visually appealing as a nice tree line. But actually, the tree line might block enough sound that the general public is happy with it. And it looks the most appealing one. And then obviously, you know, the way up different stuff like cost, um, environmental impact, obviously a big drive to net zero. So that's a nicer option from that point of view. But we can simulate all different stuff like this. We utilize the experts that we've got in-house and within the industry to validate that our simulations are correct. So what is being presented to the public is a accurate representation of what as built would be. The gaming engines bring real built physics and the basic tools users need to move around an environment to anyone that wants to use them. But until recently, designers of real-time simulations were limited by the hardware available to users. Simulations like this were designed for consoles and expensive purpose-built PCs. The power needed to run these simulations is now much more available, and that has been driven in part by the smartphone revolution. That required developers to find ways to run games on these relatively underpowered devices. It's, it's actually how this company started. So there was three guys uh, who were making a game and the, the rise of the smartphone had just happened. So, you know, Android was out and I think the, uh, the, the, the iPhone was launched when these guys were trying to make a game and they thought, oh, we want to run it on that. So they made it where the same content would be able to be built on any target rather than doing the app three times. They built it once and then you, when you compiled the output, you could send it to an, an Apple or you could send it to a PC or an Android. That simplifies life for the developers. But the widespread adoption of high-speed internet means that game designers and engineers can begin to completely ignore the hardware a simulation will be viewed on. Instead, they can do the work in the cloud and just stream interactive video to the viewer. We can do stuff um, now via like streaming on web. So we can deliver the application to a mobile device, to a desktop PC. 
that potentially isn't quite powerful enough on its own to run stuff, but with the support of web streaming, actually can now run it. That's using the power of the cloud. So you're using power that's delivered to your screen, your device. The app runs on their hardware, not yours. So we're back to the old days of having a terminal. So literally your screen and keyboard and other things running something remotely. This is how computers first started, where you went to a mainframe. The same trends are now powering the adoption of AR and VR. In the consumer space, the metaverse might just mean hanging out leglessly with your legless mates in a virtual McDonald's. But in the professional world, there could be real value to metaverse collaboration. When we kind of look at it in, in detail with people, people just wanting to be connected on their projects together. And that could be just in a design review kind of way where um, so somebody's sharing different elements of a project. And rather than being on Teams or Zoom and sharing a screen, they want to see it from their point of view, have changes made in real time and keep evolving the project together. But working remotely, that hybrid working, you know, somebody working from home, somebody working in an office, and, you know, just take Atkins, for example, they are distributed worldwide. So they will work with other colleagues in other offices. And that's what, what I call the project metaverse. It's the social interaction on your content in your project. AR will allow engineers to take these simulations out of the office and to use them on site. Let's say you're a gas engineer or water engineer, or you're just resurfacing a road. At the moment, it can be quite hard to actually understand exactly where the pipes are. And often you're going off previous reports, documentations, which could actually be slightly dated um, or wrong, <laughs> quite frankly. Now, imagine if, imagine if you could put on a headset that could tie into the, the infrastructure databases that show where all that piping and cabling is. And if you stood on that road with your team around you, you put that headset on and you could see the depth and exact locations for the cabling for the water. But you could also then see, you know, where's the nearest valve to shut this area off? Or is this a live wire? You know, is this connected to a sensor in the power station? Has this been turned off or is it still on? And you could start to lay it all out. That technology allows for training in dangerous environments that doesn't just explain the risks, but shows them to users and allows them to practice how they will respond in an emergency. We've built response procedures, you know, for, for nuclear power plants in virtual reality. You know, so to get into the sites of, of some of these nuclear reactors is a huge cost, a huge amount of paperwork. And in some of them, you know, you need to suspend certain services while they're in there. Now, to, you have to train people on how to deal with, with these environments and what to do when it goes wrong. But what we found extremely beneficial is you build that environment in a, in a digital realm and you let them go through that multiple times. So we, for this project, for example, there'd be an oil link, link in one, leaking one of the pipes. You'd have to follow a correct procedure to fix that pipe, but there could also be an instructor flying around watching you do it while the, while the user's in VR. Now, when they put on the gas mask, when the hazardous material starts to leak into the room, their field of view is limited 
to the, the gas mask. So suddenly they lose a lot of their visibility. And everything that's placed out that they need to carry out for that procedure is in the correct location as it would be in the real world. So we're nowhere near the point of these tools completely replacing real world training. But if you can get someone to train in that environment five times in the office, which requires no health and safety, no paperwork, no cost, the first time they enter that, it's called an expensive environment, they are already familiar to some degree with how it how it pans out and what will my level of visibility be? Where is, you know, where is that valve? Understanding how a physical environment changes, how new hazards develop over time, is vital to training emergency workers. But in a public place like a football stadium or underground station, planners must also consider the behaviour of crowds. A crowd isn't an undifferentiated mass. It's a collection of individuals. Some of them will read the warning notices, others will stay calm under pressure, but many will be confused and panicked. AI is enabling crowds to be modelled in ways that reflect that they are made up of individuals. So new AI systems where the crowds are independently thinking for themselves. They're looking at what's the best thing to do. What rules have I got and how likely am I to break those rules? So an example of this could be like a fire drill system in an office building. Everyone knows you don't use the elevators, you go down the fire escapes, you walk calmly, everyone in single file out the door. But we can start looking at AI and going, well, actually, no, what happens if that is a fire? What percentage of people are likely to break protocol? If 5% of people break protocol, does that actually lead 20% of people to break protocol? Because the 5% are panicking, they need to adapt to that. And suddenly, are these scenarios that have been thought out on paper that make perfect sense? How realistic are they in a real world scenario? The next step for AI, Jack says, might not be used within the simulation. Instead, tools like ChatGPT can now be used to do much of the initial work of developing the bespoke logic needed for engineering applications. Video streaming allows immersive simulations to be run on lightweight apps. But new web standards are going further, allowing these to run directly in a browser like Chrome. And tools like LiDAR sensors on phones, along with increasingly lightweight and cheap VR and AR glasses, will also allow users to view simulations in the real world. Together, these technologies will make the use of real-time simulations a routine part of professional life. The game now is to find new ways to use these tools. Engineering Matters is a production of Rebe Media. This episode was written and produced by Will North, and hosted by me, Johnny Dowling, and by Rian Owen. Editing and series supervision by John Young. Sound engineering by Ross McPherson. And the all-seeing master of ravens that judges our progress is Rory Harris. Thanks to our partner for this episode, Atkins, and thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast apps, on our website, engineeringmatters.reby.media, on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Instagram.